remember when I was a child, people kept telling me that in classical music by Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven, there was something mysterious called development. What it was, I didn't really know. And even now, after years of listening to my favourite pieces by these composers, I often find myself swept away by the fantastic tissue of connections. But still, I remain unsure how the composer is developing the music. However, of one thing I'm certain, to have musical development, whatever that is, in the first place you have to have something to develop, a musical idea. Even by the standards of Mozart, what a perfectly extraordinary idea that is. Here are the opening notes again. There are so many different suggestions in there. There's a hint of the wrong key, which falls to the right key. There's the beginning of a falling chromatic scale. And there's that strange, lonely, high note, reaching for the stars, as it were. And each of those different suggestions, we could call each one a different voice, has its own journey to go on in these opening bars. So, for example, that lonely high note links to other lonely high notes that follow. And that tiny chromatic scale leads on to two other tiny scales. When you put those three scales together, they suggest this. And that downwards chromatic scale is immediately answered by another chromatic scale sliding upwards. So, within what appears to be a single strange and twisting line for strings and bassoons, in octaves and with no harmonies, in fact, there are complex suggestions of harmonies and the ghosts of many different voices. But there's more. For built into the rhythm and phrase structure is one of the favourite devices of the classical composers, a kind of telescope or acceleration. Listen to how four bars are answered by two bars, then another two bars, then one bar and then the whole phrase collapses into a kind of curling tail.
What this telescoping motion does, among other things, is swing the weight of the music towards the end. It's a bit like someone walking forwards, throwing their weight ahead of themselves so as to build up the speed and momentum to climb a hill. There's one other element to these opening bars that I haven't mentioned. This strange and twisting line for strings and bassoons is not completely on its own. It starts that way, but then, as the phrase draws to its end, another music enters too. The distinctive sound of this second idea, high woodwind instruments playing in sweet parallel thirds, is going to be extremely important in the music that's still to come. It sounds quite unlike the first idea, but it's not quite as different as it appears. Take the first oboe. There's part of that same chromatic scale we heard hidden in the strings and bassoon line. So, in these woodwind lines entering late in the day over the top of the strings and bassoons, we have another example of telescoping. The wind music is a kind of foreshortened version of the other music that's already started. Again, the effect is to push the movement of the music forward to make it tumble over into the next stretch when the whole orchestra comes in. Mozart was the greatest of musical illusionists. He loved to persuade us that he was repeating something when in fact he wasn't. And he also loved to do the opposite, to present us with something that sounds different, but which then turns out to be the same. So here, that quiet opening phrase on the strings and bassoons is answered by music which sounds at once almost the same and very different played by the whole orchestra loudly with power and grandeur, with the sounds of horns, trumpets and drums, introducing a warlike military note which will also be important later. It's rather like a Greek chorus repeating and elaborating the words first spoken by a tragic heroine. Instead of stopping right there, Mozart carries on this second phrase of the opening paragraph into a third phrase, and this one sets us down in a new place, somewhere different from where the first phrase ended. And having just been clearest in the upper orchestra, the opening idea now plunges down into the bass once more. So, at the opening of the C minor piano concerto, there's something like a three-part shape. First, there's that dark, soft, sombre opening in octaves. 
Then that's answered by the whole orchestra transforming the first phrase and throwing most images up into the highest instruments. And now, finally, there's a third phrase, a rhetorical flourish telling us that we've arrived somewhere new. Where is the idea in all of this, the idea which Mozart will develop? Is it just those very opening notes? Or is it the whole three-part structure we've just described, all 34 bars of it? Or is it somewhere in between, somewhere in the play between the explosive suggestiveness of the tiny details and the much broader implications of the three-part form and phrase structure of the heroine and the chorus? In fact, the music here is so rich that probably every time we come back to it, we'll hear it in a different way. And how we hear it now affects how we hear what happens to this same complex of ideas later on in the movement. One thing's sure, what we hear at this point is so memorable that we'll always notice it when it returns. In Mozart's language, it's typical that the large moments of return, the great restatements of the opening theme, will be our key to grasping the form of the whole piece. There are around seven such returns in this movement, and each one will make us feel a mixture of recognition, a sense of arrival and a sense of starting again, and also amazement at the way Mozart endlessly distorts what we think is the same music in order to make it sometimes shockingly different. So the first return of this idea, which happens quite quickly, is strikingly brief. In fact, it speeds up what we just heard at the beginning by splicing together all the different elements we noticed. The theme, the descending chromatic scales, the parallel thirds, the military music and Mozart even shortens the theme itself, ending it more suddenly than he did the first time. And as you heard in the last chord there, he sets us down in yet another new place. The next return makes another kind of change. The same orchestral elements are there as before, but this time Mozart snatches them away after only a handful of bars, and the solo piano takes over, giving the idea a completely different feel. Though don't miss those mysterious chromatic scales that keep going in the strings behind the piano part. The next return of the opening is one of the most famous in the piece. It's famous because it's so odd and unexpected. It comes out of the blue when the soloist and the orchestra are busy with something completely different, another kind of music that's got nothing to do with the opening.
The many statements or versions of the opening idea of the concerto function almost like pillars, which are holding up the form of the building that Mozart has made. Each one is instantly recognizable. Each one articulates some important or surprising moment in the form, and each one suggests, as I said earlier, both a return to something familiar and the initiation of something new. But the possible uses of this musical idea don't stop there, for in between his pillars, Mozart has built walls and arches and windows, also out of the same material, and these seem to draw on or develop, if you like, many details and recognizable images from this same complex of tune and thirds and military music and so on. What I keep calling the idea. If we looked at all the ways he does this, we'd be here till tomorrow. So let's just pick a few examples at random. How about this music, which immediately follows the opening statement of the idea? What really catches at the ear is the rhythm. The way the skip in the oboe part picks up the second little phrase from the very opening. As the movement unfolds, we become so familiar with these images that Mozart is able to touch on them in passing and with the utmost brevity, so that quite often we have the feeling of recognizing things without necessarily ever being quite sure what they are. And Mozart plays with us in another way too. He slips in a suggestion of something almost by chance, and often without even starting at the beginning. Suddenly, we can find ourselves in the middle of a phrase we recall, which makes us feel we heard the beginning of it, even though we didn't, or if we did, it was quite a bit earlier, like this moment of glittering passage work. Where this figure in the strings. Is actually finishing off an earlier statement of the idea that began like this. connections and echoes are ones that, once your ear has become familiar with this piece, leap out at you. They're not really hidden. As you get to know the music, they reveal themselves as part of the play of Mozart's mind, of his feeling for drama and mystery and tragedy, but also of his irrepressible sense of fun and laughter and wit. But there are some connections that seem to operate at a slightly more arch level. They are connections, but something about them seems to deny it, to ask not to be recognized in the same way. Take this moment, which seems to have nothing to do with the opening.
and then take the woodwind parts on their own. Those first four notes suddenly sound like a veiled version of the opening after all. For me, moments of connection like that are when Mozart's at his strangest and most enigmatic, and of course at his most concentrated. And this particular moment is also, I think, deliberately disconcerting, which is something I'll come back to in a minute or two. Mozart also has other important ways of being concentrated, and most of all when he takes apart his images to such an extent that you start to hear echoes even in the smallest details. Just a note or two can remind you of something. Again, rhythm here is crucial. This tiny fragment from the opening phrase means that after a while we start to hear any leaping rhythm which involves just two notes as a development, an echo or extraction from the start of the piece, like these woodwind figures in thirds towards the end of the movement. which add an air of familiarity to music which otherwise, again, seems to have nothing to do with the opening. So, after so much music that's developed, and especially developed out of the opening, what of the rest of this movement that really does sound completely different, the music that's got nothing to do with the beginning? To me, what's most fascinating about this other music is the dramatic economy with which it's used. There are three other ideas in this first movement, and Mozart, instead of developing them as he has everything else we've heard so far, simply states them, changing them slightly on their return, but otherwise encouraging us to hear them as things, as it were fixed in their own image rather like paintings that he's brought in to hang on the walls between the pillars. It's clear that the point of this other music is precisely that it doesn't change. It simply is. And interestingly, each of these three other ideas occurs only twice. It's almost as though Mozart were making sure that the colours of this other music didn't leak into the surrounding wall space. The point is to contrast with the colour of the wall, not to interfere with it. The first of these three other ideas is exclusively the property of the piano soloist. The orchestral exposition has happened, and Mozart's bringing it to a grand feeling of closure. We can feel that the piano is about to come in, and we expect it to come in with its own version of the same idea. Instead, it comes in with something completely different.
What's always just as astonishing as Mozart's gift for making his ideas feel connected is his opposite gift, as here, for making them feel different and separate. The remaining two other ideas take up a good deal more room than that one. Both occupy the space in a traditional schoolroom sonata form of what's called the second subject. In other words, in this piece there are two second themes, and they're quite separate and different from one another. The first second theme appears as a dancing piano melody, which is quickly answered or echoed by the orchestra. After a long detour, the second second theme appears and takes the opposite course. It begins in the orchestra and is then echoed or answered by the piano. When Mozart brings these two second themes back, however, towards the end of the movement, he very deliberately reverses their order. He begins with the second of the two, and then, without any detour this time, puts the first one immediately after it. And what makes this move sound so laden with intention isn't just that he's recomposed the whole relationship between the two ideas. For this is the same moment I illustrated earlier, where Mozart twists the woodwind line suddenly and for a tiny moment to make what I called before a disconcerting echo of the very opening of the piece. In other words, this is the only moment in the movement where he seems actually to blend his different contrasted ideas, to confuse the boundaries between them. This is the highest form of musical drama, music as drama. It's indescribably beautiful. A small child would find it fascinating. But it's also very subtle. No one else, not even Beethoven, who loved this concerto, could do it quite like this. In the closing pages of this first movement of the C minor concerto, after the cadenzas come and gone, 
There's once again hardly a hint of those three other ideas. They've become just a memory, and the original idea from the very opening takes over once more and for the last time. Though Mozart here seems not so much to be developing it as dissolving its constituent elements into one another. That haunting, twisting tune from the beginning, the chromatic scales, the thirds, and the marching military music, all fold at last into a single wave of sound. After all the drama, the music seems to vanish with scarcely a goodbye. It's in the nature of the classical language, the classical style, that contrast and the balance of contrasts is just as important as the integration and development of ideas. Not only Mozart, but Haydn and Beethoven were as brilliant at distinguishing ideas as they were at connecting them, and the same thing applies to the balance between the different movements of a single piece. In this C minor concerto, for example, each of the three movements offers utterly different ideas and an utterly different experience, and each movement works in an utterly different way. If the first movement was all about flux, transition, development, and extension, with the other contrasted ideas floating within that, the second movement creates a far more static world of stillness and contemplation. Look for a moment at how Mozart constructs the opening melody. Everything seems so simple, like a child's arrangement of building blocks, and yet, with every move that Mozart makes, the structure changes. Nothing is as it seems. That seems so simple, but stop for a moment, and you might sense that each of the four little phrases there, from which that apparently simple melody is made, stands at a slight angle from what's before and after. Mozart changes the style of the accompaniment from phrase to phrase, and each of the four parts of the melody is in a different register. The last phrase, for instance, suddenly leaps down far below where the rest of the melody has been. This disjunction, this quality of non sequitur, is immediately taken up and exaggerated when the orchestra comes in with its own version of the same idea. First, we get the strings playing more or less what the piano played, with the woodwind and horns sustaining richly scored chords behind.
Then the lower woodwind take over the second phrase, and the sound is completely different. Then we return to the rich strings and winds of the first phrase. And finally, we get a different kind of woodwind sound, staccato, almost a processional. These two different versions of the same four-bar melody are now balanced by piano and strings with a different melody, again in a different style, like a singer with a vamped accompaniment, and it's curiously pulled out of shape by the woodwind towards the end, so that the line becomes longer and distorted. Not four bars now, but seven. Finally, we come back to the original melody, but once again scored in a different way, mixing piano and wind. Nothing in Mozart's mind ever seems to have stood still. He was constantly teasing, trying to see how many different ways an idea can be heard. Within that short musical sentence, with its four discrete parts and each part itself divisible into four, at each moment we seem to have touched on different worlds. There were hints of chorales, of religious music, a little serenade for wind ensemble, what the Austrians and Germans used to call a harmonie. A kind of town band for a hot summer's night in the park, a touch of some kind of stately dance, and a suggestion of a mournful operatic aria. Building blocks may be, but at once fitting together and remaining quite distinct and separate from one another. A different composer might have repeated this melody later on in the movement and enjoyed showing off all the same details again, but although Mozart repeats the tune twice. Each time it appears, it's changed again. But this isn't development like in the first movement. Nothing advances dramatically. It's more in the nature of changing contemplation, as though the same idea had sounded different every time he looked at it.
Though the characteristic open-air sound of the harmonie was undoubtedly something very popular and important in the classical period, the particular contrast here between that on one side and the piano and strings on the other, that's something special to this C minor concerto, and it's something Mozart carries on playing with in the final movement. The form of the third movement is again quite different from the development of the first movement and the contemplation of the second one. It's a theme in eight variations. And the play between wind band and piano and strings here becomes a way of giving character to different variations, making them stand out from one another. The theme itself is wonderfully subtle. It's a kind of march, but one poised tantalizingly between public grandeur and private sorrow. The first variation is for piano and strings alone, but in the second, Mozart returns to playing between that combination and the wind band. It's almost like a continuation of the second movement. First, we get the harmony. Then the piano and strings have the same idea, but transformed. So, in fact, within each variation, there are other variations, different kinds of variations. It's like nests of boxes within boxes. So, although this movement is so different from the previous two, it has in fact borrowed one element from the slow movement, the idea of a dialogue between wind band on one side and piano and strings on the other. And it also borrows an element from the first movement, the dotted rhythm and the horns, trumpets and drums of military music. So, the third movement, although it doesn't sound the same as the first two, is full of subtle reminders of them. And that way, all three movements are joined together, rather like the ideas within the movements are joined together. More boxes within boxes. I mentioned earlier that Beethoven is said to have loved this concerto, and especially, or so one of his students remembered, he was struck by one particular moment towards the end of this third movement. It comes in the eighth and final variation, which Mozart scores for piano alone. It's a strange variation for other reasons too. Mozart compresses the theme so that it becomes as short as possible. He completely changes the rhythm, and he introduces a kind of harmonic flattening in the second and fourth phrases. It's an effect that generations of music students have been taught to call the Neapolitan. 
What happens next is the very moment Beethoven is supposed to have been so impressed by. Mozart takes that last little Neapolitan phrase and just repeats it an octave lower. So simple. We should be so lucky, Beethoven apparently said, to be able to say so much with just four notes. Such a fleeting moment. Let's hear it again more slowly. But it's not just the flattened Neapolitan harmony that makes this moment so significant. For it's also the moment when Mozart breaks the form of the whole movement so far. By repeating that last phrase in that way, he destroys the simple four-phrase symmetry of the theme that he's been varying all along. And seizing hold of that last idea on its own, his imagination suddenly sets out in another direction, a moment of freedom, even thinking back to the first movement of development. And indeed, shades of the first movement and of its opening idea hover all over the final pages of this concerto. And in those last bars just then, you also heard the familiar sound of the harmony wind band from the second movement as well. So, in a way, Mozart is drawing the threads of the whole work together in the closing pages. It's a familiar idea. Except that it's not really what he does. Or at any rate, it's only part of what he does, and probably not even the most interesting part. To me, what's far more astonishing and moving is how different this closing music is from what's gone before. Having set up a clear and easily understandable form, clear and easily recognisable tunes and ideas, Mozart just changes everything, offers us something far away as Beethoven recognised, from anything we could have imagined on our own. Everyone has always been astonished by the beauty of Mozart's music. An aristocrat of his own day, who had apparently never even heard Mozart's name before, is said to have exclaimed when he heard one of the operas, this man's melodies would draw the angels down from heaven. But more than the beauty, what matters is what animates that beauty, what gives it life, what makes it so unlike the beauty of any other composer. And here we come back to the vexed idea of development. In this concerto, as so often in Mozart's music, what drives the development forward, what makes our ears cling to every word of the story that Mozart tells, is the sheer unexpectedness of every move he makes. The way that whatever he does, he cuts right across anything that we ourselves might have thought would happen next. Mm -hmm. 